So, Moses. Let's start with Moses. Moses gets the Torah at Mount Sinai, right? We talked about last, last time we talked about, uh, last time was about the Mount Sinai experience, the significance of it as being the foundation of our religion, uh, it being a revelation that is a one of a kind experience, as we mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, verse 32 and 33, or 31 and 32, I don't remember which, one, which ones it was, uh, where it talks about the one of a kind, never been replicated, never even been claimed to have happened. A remarkable event. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He spends a total of 40 days there. He comes back down. We know he sees Jewish people. There's a small segment of the people of population. In fact, a point, uh, 0.5% of the population, only a mere 3,000 people out mm-hmm. of uh, a total of 600,000. Uh, so and that's out of the males. The women didn't participate mm-hmm. uh, as many in many mistakes uh-huh. and many misdeeds of the people uh, of the Jewish people. It's always the men. I don't. I don't know why. That's just. That's just it. Uh, we talk about why men have more mitzvahs than women. Uh, men have bris milas, like such a fundamental mm-hmm. mitzvah, such a mm-hmm. core mitzvah. Yet it's only for it's only for men. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talk about the fact that men are born with more to fix. Uh, thus, the mitzvah of bris milah of circumcision is kind of demonstrative of of the responsibility that of humanity at large mm-hmm. to fix what's broken. We're not perfect. The money the money delivers us to this world imperfect by design mm-hmm. men are more imperfect thus they have more mitzvahs to try to fix that to undo that uh so they uh synagogue and calf god threatens to destroy decimate and completely obliterate the entire nation moses intercedes on their behalf he eventually spends a total of three trips three times 40 days up on the mountain mm-hmm. he descends from the mountain on yom kippur mm-hmm. Thus, the first Yom Kippur in Jewish history is the Yom Kippur right after half a year after they left Egypt. And on Yom Kippur, the Almighty finally uh, accedes to Moses' request and tells him, Salachti kidvarecha, I have atoned as per your request. Mm-hmm. He receives the second set of tablets. The first tablets were broken. And that is a day that is forever ensconced in the Jewish calendar as a day of atonement, a day of, a day of redemption and a day of prayer thus to achieve those goals. The day afterwards, what happens the day after Yom Kippur? They begin the fundraising effort. Kind of very similar to what happens in schools today. Everyone's fundraising around the high holidays. But the fundraising effort of collecting money and materials and gold and silver and different kinds of threads and fabrics and whatnot to build the Mishkan. What's a Mishkan? Loosely translated, tabernacle. What's a tabernacle? Dwelling place. Uh, well, what's a, what does that mean? It, it is a... Uh, physical, uh, basically a building, a structure that could be taken apart and put together, mm-hmm. uh, wherein is a, a physical manifestation of God's divine presence. presence. That's right, the Shekhinah. Now, this, this Mishkan is going to be at the center of Jewish life and Jewish focus uh, for, you know, basically with minor lapses to the uh, first yeah. century of the Common Era. So it's going to spend 1,400 years mm-hmm. at the core of the Jewish consciousness. Um, and Moses put it together at that time. They stay in, uh, encamped at Mount Sinai for a total of almost a year, 10 days short of the year. And what did they do there at that time? Moses begins his primary life's mission, and that is transmitting God's Torah to God's people, to the nation. God tells Moses, I want you to teach the Jews such and such. 
Moses goes and sits down, convenes first Aaron, then and then Joshua, uh, then then the elders and Aaron's children. Eventually, teaches the whole the whole nation. And what do they do? What do they do during this forty years that they spend in the wilderness? So, of course, they eat the manna, they drink water from a rock, they have a kind of miraculous, supernatural, mm-hmm. transcendental level of living. Mm-hmm. But what? But their primary focus, their pastime, what they're doing is studying the Torah and integrating the Torah principles into mm-hmm. their life. Now, the Torah is given. Uh, we know when we say Torah, we can mean a lot of things. We can mean the, f- the physical book, the Torah. Mm-hmm. Moses only wrote the book at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Remember, in the book itself are some narratives of Moses. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Moses didn't write down the book at Mount Sinai because that right. book, the book hadn't. Some of the stuff in the, in the story hadn't happened. What Moses did receive at Mount Sinai was what we call the Oral Torah. Mm-hmm. When we talk about Torah, it can mean a lot of things. There's the oral to- part, there's a the written part. It's, it's, it comes in two sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like you have uh, the, the book that the students get, and then there's the teacher's edition. Uh, some examples. You know, we know that the written Torah itself, the one that Moses delivers, not the one that we still have today, uh, has mitzvahs that don't seem to be possible to be understood what they mean. For example, it says, we're totafot. What does totafot mean? What language is totafot in? It's one of the only words, it's only one of the only words in the Torah that are not written in Hebrew. Torah is written in Hebrew. Uh, for the vast majority, there's two words in Genesis that are written in, uh, in, uh, in Aramaic. Yigar Sahadusa, not Hebrew. And there are several words uh, throughout the rest of the Torah written in other languages as well. So uh, the word tat-pat or totafot is the word that the Torah used to describe tefillin. Everyone's familiar with, with tefillin, black boxes worn by Jews, mm-hmm. uh, c- containing Torah scrolls on their arms and on their head. Right? For, for, okay. Thank you. Calling, That's yeah, good. Yeah. Tefillin. So tefillin is called Totafot. Totafot is not written in Hebrew. Thomas says it's written in, in a language called Afriki, but it sounds like African, some African dialect. Uh, either way, the Torah to- tells us this mitzvah uh, multiple times the Torah we're told to wear tefillin between our eyes. Right. What tefillin is, how it looks like, what color it is, how do you make it, is not described anywhere in the Torah written book of the, uh, of the Torah. In fact, the Torah also says things about the tefillin that is warm between their eyes, and mm-hmm. no one wears tefillin between their eyes. Mm-hmm. So, this is a good example of the success of the oral Torah in perpetuating uh, the, true, uh, the true interpretation of what God wants from us to modern times. You go uh, to the, the shul, the, the synagogue next door, Come there at 7 o'clock in the morning. You'll see all the men wearing black boxes on top of their head. They're black boxes. If you look closely, you'll notice the one on top of their head has four slight compartments. And if you actually do some investigation, you'll find that each one of those black boxes on top of their head is is comprised of a single piece of leather that was uh, prepared by a a skilled, uh, what's called a batemach, or someone who makes tefillin. And inside those four compartments are four Torah scrolls. And what the Torah scrolls are, are identical across all tefillins. And if you look at all the armed tefillins, they all contain one compartment containing one scroll. And in fact, if you go to any Jewish community throughout the world, and you investigate their tefillins, you'll find that they all have the same exact kind of tefillin, same color, looks exactly the same, and it is identical, despite the fact that the Torah doesn't tell us how it's done. So this is a living example as to the, uh, the role that the oral Torah plays in perpetuating what the Almighty wants us to do and to fulfill. The Yemenite Jews are a fantastic case study 
for this idea. Yemenite Jews, they emigrated uh, to Yemen. Uh, Yemen is a, uh, a, is a landlocked, well, not really, not landlocked, but it's, it's on the peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula. Mm. It's south of Saudi Arabia, very, very far from any, it's, it, it has basically water below, beneath it on, on all three sides and Saudi Arabia. It's just the Arabian desert separated them. So it, it basically was isolated from the rest of the Jewish people for 2,400 years. They went between the, uh, between the, uh, between the two temple periods after the destruction of the first temple. Uh, some Jews went to Yemen and they remained there until the 1950s and 60s when they were all airlifted to Israel. Uh, but they had, uh, they had, they had, um, they sent letters. They have communications that we have. Let's say between Rambam. Someone mentioned Rambam, Maimonides earlier. They had communications between with the rest of the Jews. Uh, but like when the Talmud was written in the fifth century, so fifth and sixth century of the of the Common Era, they got like a delivery box, kind of like you know you get from Amazon. You get like a box, like. So they got they got the Talmud delivered to them, mm-hmm. you know. But they had no other uh, interplayer uh, between uh, them and the rest of the Jewish world. You now they the arrived. Well, the Babylonian Talmud, yes. Uh, these uh, these Yemenite Jews they arrived to Israel in the 1950s and they brought with them their tefillin. And someone said, you know what? This is a community that's been living in total isolation for 2,400 years. Let's see what the tefillin looks like. And you know what? Lo and behold, identical to our tefillin. In 1947, the most significant archaeological find of all time was discovered in southern Israel, a place called Qumran. It was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? A very significant archaeological find. Why? Because uh, that part of of Israel happens to be the driest place on earth. It's the lowest place on earth. It's no rain whatsoever. Uh, and therefore, scrolls were maintained in absolute uh, perfect mint condition for millennia. Mm-hmm. So 2,200-year-old scrolls we have. Thousands upon thousands of scrolls, all the books of the Torah. You compare the books of the Torah to what we have today, identical. You compare the tefillin that they found there. They found tefillin, religious artifacts, identical to the ones that we have today. Pretty remarkable the fact that even the Torah does not explicitly tell you what film looks like, how it's constructed, or what materials you use, or what scrolls you use, still we find that this is an example of what the oral Torah is. It's the actual application of the law that was not actually written down till much later. Uh, and one of the major challenges or responsibilities uh, of our religion, and especially the leadership of our religion, has been to preserve the accurate uh, corpus of Jewish knowledge throughout the the generations. Moses says to the Jewish people, listen, I have a direct link with the Almighty. He tells me what the Torah wants, what the the Torah means, I convey it to you. He gives me clear instructions, I convey them to you. They're clear. Your job and my job as the leader is to ensure that these messages and these laws and these ideas are conveyed without any mistakes for eternity. In 2015 in Houston, the Jewish people are going to have to have the same Torah that Moses received from the Almighty and Moses gave on to the Jewish people. That is a heavy task, obviously. Right? Uh, one of the... Uh, one of the... Uh, one of the... Um, I don't know what I was going to say before those people walked in. Let's scratch that one of the from the uh, court documents. Uh, uh, but this is going to be a huge deal. Uh, we looked uh, throughout the course of Jewish history. Whenever, whenever 
the existence of the Torah is threatened. Whenever the perpetuation con- continuity of the Torah is threatened, um, uh, by, by virtue of that, the Jewish people uh, at their core are threatened. The Jewish people are going to spend so many years in exile, dispersed throughout mm-hmm. the land, cross culture, cross continents, cross language. Everything is going to be different. And that can have a common land, language, or culture. What is going to keep the people united? What is going to keep people Jewish? Mm-hmm. What's going to keep the people in North Africa and, and, and in, in, in Yemen and in Babylon and Persia and France and England and in, in the United States? What, what, what unites us? The Sabbath. Right? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath is one mitzvah, but yeah, the Torah at large yeah. is an example of what keeps us. Uh, so thus, the mission of preserving the Torah is as crucial as the mission as preserving Judaism. And, and our religion has no value. Like we talked last time about, about what our goal is. What's our responsibility? The Torah is the only way we could do it. If we didn't have the Torah, then we might as well just you know, fold our cards right now. Like, let's turn the keys back in. Right? We failed. Right. And failure is not an option. So uh, when we, uh, what I want to do today is try to talk about the role of the central authority throughout the years. Uh, central leadership of the people and how they um, made important decisions, kind of the methodology that they used to maintain the Torah uh, throughout the generations. Mm-hmm. And kind of we'll talk like, a little bit about the relationship that Jewish people have with Torah and how that developed and progressed throughout the generations. What do y'all say about that? Yeah, we're good? Fantastic? Good. Elizabeth? Yes. Excellent. Okay. In the Book of Numbers we find a uh, crucial establishment of a, a central authority for the Jewish people by name of the Sanhedrin. Anyone who has heard the term? Oh, yeah. Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the... Sit down. I'm not wrong. That's okay. That's okay. Do we, we, do we not write, write with you? So, no. They're not here. Are you in the class? Oh, is that it's yes. going on right now? Yeah. So, we find the establishment of a critical uh, uh, institution that is going to be a mainstay of the Jewish people for uh, till the 4th century of the Common Era. So, Moses establishes an institution. That's going to withstand. That's going to last basically seventeen hundred years. Remarkable. That's the Sanhedrin. Uh, this is the Book of Numbers. That's when it's established, and we have records of it in modern mm-hmm. times as well. The Sanhedrin had uh, several roles. The roles changed over time, but primarily the role would become to be the adjudicators of the law mm-hmm. and the safety gap and preventative measure to ensure that the Torah. Uh, have, uh, breeds no mistakes and no mistakes fall in transmission. So that's going to be one of the major, major institutions that are going to ensure that the Jewish people and the Jewish Torah remain united and no mistakes befall. Now, how would they do that? It's very interesting. The Torah describes what happens if you have, uh, you know, a disagreement. You know, the 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 big fear, the biggest danger is where you have one guy says, "Oh, you know what." Tefillin doesn't have four compartments, it has five compartments. One, it's one, rab- one rabbi in town says. The other rabbi in town says, no, 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 no I heard it was four. Mistake tell us when we're human, right? What do we do, right? What do, do you wear five? Do you wear four? Do we have two? Do we start out Judaism one, Judaism two? Right? Is that what we do? There's a mitzvah Torah. You cannot have, you cannot have 
uh, you cannot have sectarianism. You cannot have different groups. Right? Once you have the Jewish people splintering into two, you have major, major problems at hand. So what do you do? Remember, the Torah is was intended to be considered to, to the, the vast majority of the content of the Torah was intended to be maintained orally. Mm-hmm. Rabbi to student, father to child. That's the way it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right? You'll see that your you know your dad wears sitsis, you put on sitsis. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you your dad shows you how he shakes his lulav and how he bakes his matzah and 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 uh and how he keeps kosher, and how he how he uh, uh, affixes a mezuzah, etc., etc. Those that's how you learn. It's dynamic. I'm sorry, Daniel. Enjoy, enjoy your other class. We left this. Was it something I said? <laughs> <laughs> no, he came to game. So that's uh, that's how it's going to be done. What happens? You have a disagreement, and it's natural. And in fact, we find a pattern. There's a very crucial pattern. Whenever the times are most difficult, whenever the times are, uh, are uh, whenever we're, uh, we're oppressed, whenever there's persecution, whenever the Gentiles say, oh, you guys can't study Torah publicly. That's happened many, many times over the course of Jewish history. Uh, when we're under the most uh, duress from our neighbors, that is when the risk of perpetuating the Torah in its accurate form is highest. Right? Imagine they told you, "Hey, listen, you want to teach a Torah? Okay, you teach Torah. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll shove you off a, of a cliff." Mm-hmm. You know, teaching Torah uh, is uh, prohibited on pain of death. That happened in the in the second century before the Common Era. Mm-hmm. Um, a fellow by the name of Antiochus the uh, fourth, I think it was, mm-hmm. he established rules basically prohibiting study of Torah, public study of Torah, or public uh, performance of mitzvahs, or observance of kosher laws. What do you do? Right? Whenever those rules are enacted, the risk of the Jewish people losing this wonderful uh, tradition rises. Uh, and uh, this is so, oh, so so what happens? You have to, you take a few years off in Torah study, and then the mistake falls. So the so Torah tells us, you know, when there's a mistake, one rabbi says one thing, other rabbi says another thing. You guys go to Jerusalem. Sanhedrin was the the, the supreme rabbinical court. It was assembled of seventy one justices plus. Uh, 69 apprentices or, 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 or minor just, justices, right? Justices in waiting. And so we have some more visitors here. So basically the 140, yeah, well, 69. So basically the 140, the 140 greatest scholars of the Jewish people were in Jerusalem. And any question or any disagreement that you had in your little town in southern Israel, northern Israel, and on the east bank of the Jordan River, wherever, you, you, two rabbis would come and they would stand in front of the Sanhedrin. And then one rabbi would say, I say this, mm-hmm. and I have this proof, and this is my tradition. Another guy would say, no, no, I say this. And they have the argument, and the court uh, mediates, and whatever the decision, that is the final decision. Third opinion. Now, no, 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 there's no third opinion. That's it. <laughs> that, that's it. Yeah. Now, what happens... If the other guy who was who was voted against goes home and says, "You know what? I'm not giving in to what they say. I'm going to continue teaching what I what I thought." Mm-hmm. You know what happens? Hmm? He's executed. Yeah. Oh yeah, yes. That is a that is, that is a transgression that is punishable in the Jewish court when the Jewish court was in existence by uh, by uh, capital punishment. Why? Because any sort of deviation 
from the protocol, from the procedures that were enacted to ensure that the Jewish people remain united as a single nation, that threatens the very fabric of our nation. So if you refuse to accept what the Supreme Court rules, you're basically threatening the continued existence of the Jewish people. You'll have to get executed. Pretty incredible. Go ahead. Sorry? No, I just said telling you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, during the early part, is there a question there? No question, sorry. Uh, during the early part, apologize, uh, of, of our history, we have many other institutions that are going to play a crucial role in leading the people, but also in ensuring that no mistakes fall into the, into the tradition. We have a fellow by the name of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. The, high, the first high priest was Aaron and Aaron's children. And then the high priest was the, basically the spiritual leader of the nation. He was the only person that was entitled to go into the Holy of Holies, which is the inner sanctum of the temple, and he only went there once a year. And he would be uh, uh, the, the one who takes the personal spiritual responsibility of the people. Now, he had this fascinating uh, little breastplate, mm-hmm. this, this uh, ornate uh, golden uh, vestment that he had on his chest. Uh, and in it, there were these 12 squares. Mm-hmm. And on the 12 squares were etched the names of the tribes. Mm-hmm. Now, when he had a question, when someone, when someone would present a question to him, uh, they would kind of use this little magical trick by he would basically ask what's called the Urmatum. And then the answer would illuminate. Means the stones would light up under the letters that were the correct answer. So if you all remember the beginning of the book of Samuel, Book of Samuel tells of, of this uh, a woman, this barren woman, right, mm-hmm. Hannah, and she draws. She's all upset because she has this uh, she has this other wife, uh, this uh, partner wife, uh, who's uh, has lots of kids. She has no kids. She's really depressed. So she goes to the temple, and she goes to the temple, and starts praying, and then the high priest says, "Woman, dude, you're drunk. You're drunk." Mm-hmm. So he's like, "She's like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not drunk. I'm just praying." So the Talmud tells us, why did Samuel think that Hannah was drunk? It says because his breastplate illuminated. And it said uh, four letters. Uh, uh, a chaf, uh, 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 a sin, a ration, a hey. He scrambled the letters to mean shikorah, which means, in Hebrew, she's a drunkard. When in reality, it was meant to say kisara, which means like Sarah that this woman is like Sarah, a righteous woman who doesn't have any children. So, but this was used to also help mediate any mistakes, right? When you have this direct divine link, you have this just, you know, magic. The Almighty is able to just give you, you know, openly uh, his uh, position in any manner that also mitigated any mistakes. So if there's any mistakes, those were stamped out. Uh, a third institution, not really institution, but a third entity, a third reality that existed uh, at the time, and these all existed, by the way, all the way uh, through the first temple era. We'll get to more about that. So, and the third crucial um, entity, or not entity, so we said it was a reality, is the idea of a prophet. We talked last week about what a prophet, last time more about what a prophet does and how to become a prophet, etc. Uh, but that kind, that quality of leadership uh, we had up to the beginning of the Second Temple era. So beginning, so the middle of the 4th century before the Common Era. Uh, 
Now, uh, a profit is a remarkable thing to have. You know, we have today like this uh, Find My iPhone app. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, this remark, like you lose your iPhone, you go to the Find My iPhone app. Basically, the prophet did everything from like answering the questions like or giving divine messages to the people to like simple things like find mm-hmm. your iPhone. Like we, like we know that Samuel, the prophet Samuel, I'm sorry? That's right. Well, the prophets got the... So the, the prophet Samuel, uh, some guy comes to him. His name is Saul. He tells him, listen, I'm missing my donkey. I'm looking for my donkey. My donkey's lost. So he tells him, okay, well, here's your donkey, but... He tells them exactly where his donkey is. But by the way, you're going to be the king of Israel. Mm-hmm. The king Saul became the first king of, king of Israel. He encountered Samuel because he was asking him for advice how to, how to find his donkey. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, and this was a remarkable, uh, a remarkable status that people had, that they were a nation that was worthy of having leaders that would communicate messages from God, mm-hmm. you know, that had these powers. Uh, so during that entire period, so from Moses, Moses is obviously the, the greatest of all the prophets, to Joshua, all the way through Samuel, all the way to the building of the first temple, 400 years later, the destruction of the first temple. So we're talking about uh, almost a thousand years, nearly a thousand years of leadership where the pe- you know, of the people where the leaders are prophets. So th- all those things contributed to the Torah being transmitted accurately without any mistakes. So that's kind of the introduction. So let's get a little more of the details and then we'll try to plow through what happens after prophecy ends, after the institution of the high priesthood gets corrupted and then the emergence of the Sanhedrin and their role in ensuring that the people, that the Judaism that we have today or the Judaism that, uh, that they had then would uh, continue to exist and flourish. So Moses teaches the Jewish people the Torah, the written Torah, the oral Torah. He dies, but before he dies, he gives the, he gives the Jewish people 12 scrolls. He writes on the whole Torah. Right? As to the authorship of the last eight verses of the Torah where it says that Moses dies, either he wrote it before he died in prophecy or Joshua wrote it. But the authorship of the entire Torah, the written Torah, up to the la- at least up to the last eight verses of the Torah written by Moses. And he delivered copies to each one of the tribes, each one of the 12 tribes, mm-hmm. 12 sons of of, of of Jacob, uh, and one that was kept for posterity. And all future copies that were made by the various Jewish communities were, were made from those scrolls. There are many laws uh, uh, in place and ordinances to ensure the Torah scrolls are copied accurately. If you have a Torah scroll, so it, ha- it ought to have 304,805 letters, lots of letters. You make a mistake in one letter. You omit a letter. Or you have two letters touching one letter gets scratched off, or it's or it's 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 in it's in uh, it's in high temperature, so it gets erased. That Torah scroll is validated, right? Torah scrolls have to be copied from other Torah scrolls. Though all Torah scrolls that we have today are copies of copies of copies of copies of the original Torah scrolls that Moses wrote. If someone writes a Torah scroll from memory, someone's on the computer. Well, let's let's uh, he just copies it from the computer. That is an invalid Torah scroll. It's got written from, from an extant Torah scroll, which was written from a previously extant Torah scroll from Moses. Moses dies, and the, trend, the leadership of the people is, is transferred to Joshua. We already say, the face of Moses is like the face of the sun, the face of Joshua is like the face of the moon. As we progress throughout the generations, we're going to have leaders uh, that are, uh, each successive generation is on a lower level than the previous generation. Uh, we will. We have never had anyone like Moses, and we never will have anyone like Moses. It's been downhill since then. You know, 
don't get depressed. Even it is, it is depressing, but this is a concept that, which is um, very central to, to Jewish history. That's the idea of Yuridata the road, the progressive uh, degradation of generations. That as you get further and further away from Sinai, the spiritual level that we have, spiritual capacity uh, that we can attain, is is lessened. Uh, so Joshua is the leader. Uh, he takes the Jewish people into Israel. How do they get into Israel? They cross the Jordan River. How do they cross the Jordan River? The uh, the Kohens, they're holding the Ark of the Covenant, one of the vessels that Moshe built. We talked about after the people started building the temple, uh, the Mishnah, the tabernacle. They walk into the water, and the water splits. So we talk about the water splitting. Typically, most people think of the water splitting in the Moses. Moses, the Red Sea, watches in, like the water splits. It happened again uh, by Joshua as well. The Kohens walk in, the water splits, they stay in the water, or they stay in the uh, uh, in the dry land that was now created, and the Jewish people cross, and then they leave as well. They leave 12 stones there as commemoration, and now the Jewish people have arrived. The first city that they try to conquer is the city of Jer- Jericho. They conquer Jericho in a miraculous fashion. They move on to other battles uh, with other different cities, and uh, at that time, Israel is dominated, is controlled by uh, 31 different city-states. City state is this weird former government where it's 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 not a country, uh, but it's it's a, a city which in itself is its own state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, the seven tribes comprising uh, thirty one uh, different city states, and each one has their own rule. So over the next four hundred years, there's going to be a constant battle of conquest that the Jewish people are going to take to progressively capture the entire uh, Israel. Uh, during that time, the leadership of the people is going to be judges. Mm-hmm. Their story can be found in the book of Judges. Right? Read the book of Judges. 16, uh, 16 different judges. Among them we have a female, a female judge, Deborah, of course. Uh, we were early feminists. Uh, Samson, the great Samson, that he, the battles that he had uh, with the Philistines, uh, Gidon, etc., etc., great leaders. Uh, but the time was also marked uh, with chaos and corruption because there was a lot of uh, infighting well, not a lot of infighting. Well, there was a lot of infighting as well, but also it was a time of constant, ever-present battles between between the Jews and the the people that were living there at the time. By the way, the uh, the arch nemesis of the people of the Jewish people at that time were a group of uh, uh, sea-fearing or I guess coastal people that were called the Philistines. So we talk about the modern-day Palestine or Palestinians. That term. Uh, the first time, the first use of the term uh, Philistine or Palestine uh, was the Philistines in the times of the judges. Uh, they're gone. Uh, but when Hadrian, in the year 135, when he renamed all of Israel, he resuscitated this name and renamed Israel uh, Philistinia. Uh, he renamed also Jerusalem, Alia Capitolina. He renamed a city like uh, uh, Shechem, the biblical city of Shechem. He named it Neopolis, which means new city. But, of course, the Arabs, as we all know, can't pronounce the P sound. You want to know if someone in Israel, you go to Israel, you want to see if someone's someone Arab or someone's Jewish. What do you do? How do you find out? You say, say telephone. Yeah. Telephone is the way the Israelis say cell phone. So, say telephone. If the guy says telephone, you know he's Jewish. If he says telephone, with the B, then he's Arab. So, Arabs can't say the P sound. Thus, Neopolis becomes Nablus. Thus, Nablus is the same shit as Shechem. But that's because uh, Hadrian renamed those cities. Uh, now, the modern-day Palestinians are just Jordanians that lived on the other side of the, Jor- of the Jordan River, 
and they adopted the term Palestine, which was a British mandate in the, in the year 18, 1917. They also renamed Israel Palestine, which is a reference to the, uh, to the Roman name for that city. But the Palestinians today have literally nothing to do with the Jews uh, or with the Philistines that existed 2,700 years ago. Absolutely nothing. While the Jews that we are today were the same people we've been living there for uh, since, you know, for 3,300 years, basically. So... That's the, that's the period of the Judges. Uh, and the book of Judges ends with the final verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every did, everyone did what was right. And said, Ish hayashar beinav yaseh. It was, it was basically anarchy. There was no kingdom. There was no monarchy. Uh, thus, there was uh, weak leadership, even though they had prophets, great leaders, uh, but the people weren't reined in. So you had some major, major catastrophes that happened with the people, uh, infighting and civil war that was really, really bad. You read the story, your eyeballs will pop out. You'll have to lift them up and put them back in. Pretty crazy. Book of Judges. Look at the end. Okay, so, so, that, so that's that. So uh, the last of the judges fell by the name of Samuel. We know about Samuel. We read a lot about him in the book of... That's right. And he is the one who is going to anoint the first king of Israel not, not David. I actually mentioned earlier. Who's the first uh, king of Israel? Not David. Saul. Saul that's right. Now Saul is the model of leadership. We're told that he was taller than everyone. He was head and shoulders above the nation. He was a, a, a magnificent warrior. He was a, the biggest Torah scroll. He was it. Charismatic, well-spoken, everything. Huh? Yeah, he has a, a lot of people have donkeys. Now, his career and his leadership is one of the most tragic ones in all of in all of Jewish history. He made a few critical mistakes. Uh, for example, Solomon, uh, King says so he stole. Now you have like basically this duality of leadership where you have Samuel the prophet mm-hmm. and you have Saul the king. Mm-hmm. Samuel really has a direct link with God. Mm-hmm. So Samuel comes to Saul and says, "Listen, there's a nation called the the Amalekites. We know the Torah, the 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 the." The, uh, the antithesis of the Jewish people is the Amaleks. Um, and we're commanded to destroy them. So all of them, men, women, child, and kids. You say, how do you kill children? Child Hitlers, that's what they are, okay? You kill child Hitler. Now, um, I, I, I'm preempted the question. I've ta- I've, we talked about this too many times. I know the question. Well, you kill children? Yes. You kill Hitler, the child? Yes, you do. Right? What he did, and then and, and the animals as well. So he he left uh, he left some people alive, and thus we suffered a lot from that. So Samuel goes over and says, "Listen, you messed up." God says, "You are no longer the king." And he says, "What do you mean? I still am the king. I'm going to listen to you." Basically, Samuel is looking for the next king, but Saul is still reigning supreme. Samuel goes and finds this little puny redhead by the name of David. David's like an afterthought in his family. He's like, yeah, you know. And this we see again and again. We see that the leaders of the people, the people that make uh, major changes or, 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 or that um, take responsibility for our nation, you know, it's not always with the glamour. It's not always the cookie cutter, you know. It's not that. It's, it's always someone, it's, it's always a surprise. We talk about the story of Judah and Tamar, the story of David and Bathsheba, the story of Boaz and, Ru, and Ruth, the story of even Rabbi Akiva. We have great leaders that come from very, very dubious backgrounds. You know, uh, that doesn't seem, it, it seems like that's the model of, of, great, of great Jewish uh, leaderships. Now, 
I'm sorry? Yeah, David's low shepherd when it's that time. Now, uh, David, we know, slays Goliath, and Saul promises to let him marry his daughter. What's the matter? I'm sorry? Oh. I apologize for that. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I thought that was. So Redhead, Redhead, he becomes the king, but he's the king like in the spiritual sense. Samuel tells Saul, listen, God, you may still have the crown, mm-hmm. but in God's, in God's eyes, you're no longer the, the king of Israel. David is. Saul goes on this campaign to kill David. He tries mm-hmm. everything he can. He doesn't seem to be able to do it. A lot of other terrible things happen. Eventually, Saul commits suicide, and David assumes the monarchy, and this kicks off the best 80 years in all of Jewish history. The 40 years of the reign of King David and the 40 years of the reign of King Saul, uh, of Solomon, who was his son, are going to mark basically the apex of, of the height of, of Jewish experience. This was a time where, um, where it was so good for the Jews. They had everything. They had the spiritual, they had the religious, they had the, the, the material, they had everything. Uh, they had finally uh, assumed control of all of Israel. They were models. This, was, this is like the example of the Jewish people at their finest. It was so good for the Jews that they, during those 80 years, they didn't accept converts. Interesting. They didn't accept any converts. Why not? Because they were worried that there was insincere, insincere uh, conversion. Everyone says, hey, let's sign me up, right? Look at the Jews, right? They control Hollywood. They control finance at the top of the, everything, right? Everyone's like, let me join. So they say, no, 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 no. We're worried of insincere conversions. We don't want any converts after this time. Um, David captures Jerusalem. Till that, till that point, uh, the, the center or the capital of, of Israel was in Hebron, was in Shiloh, different places. He captures Jerusalem and he buys Temple Mount, Temple Mount he bought, to make sure there's no uh, questions as to the ownership of Temple Mount. He is not able to build the temple. Uh, and Solomon, his son, builds the temple. So this magnificent temple uh, is uh, erected in, in Jerusalem, and it's going to stand for 400 years. Subsequently, all legitimate kings of, Israel's, of Israel will come from David. The Davidic line is the line of royalty of monarchy of the Jewish people, thus the messiahs that come from David, etc. Um, when we find later on in Jewish history where there are kings that are not descended from the, uh, from the line of David, mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be a big problem because it's an illegitimate king uh, in the Jewish people. This is the Second Temple era. The Hasmoneans, uh, they, uh, they made a crucial mistake in uh, anointing themselves or uh, uh, christening themselves, not with the uh, christening, I think is the way you pronounce it, christening themselves as, uh, as, as kings, but in fact they were from the Kohanes, right? And we know that, uh, we know that, David from tribe tribe of Judah, that's tribe of, of, of monarchy. Uh, that's a big deal because they can't be kings. Either way, uh, Solomon builds a temple and a fantastic, wonderful temple. Solomon marries a thousand women. Pretty awesome stuff. Uh, writes all these amazing books that are part of the part of the uh, part of the Jewish Bible. Yes, wisest man that ever lived. Solomon dies, and when Solomon dies, something really terrible happens. We have a schism. We have a split. We have a secession. 
of the northern kingdom of Israel. What happened was, is that Solomon's son, Rechavam, he becomes king, and he says, you know what, I'm going to put my He's foot wicked. down. Wicked. Oh, Yeravam's the wicked one. Don't get mixed up. Yeah. Rechavam and Yeravam. Uh, those are easily confused. Rechavam, Yeravam. By the way, not all of not in the final test. So, his son becomes king, and his son says, I'm going to put my foot down, and he puts levies, these big taxes on the northern tribes, and the northern tribe says, you know what, you guys have the temple, you guys have the kingdom, you guys are putting on these taxes, we're out. And they secede, and basically from then on, for the next 180 years, we have two kingdoms in Israel. We have the northern kingdom, called the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom, called the kingdom of Judah. And if you heard of the ten lost tribes, the ten tribes, those are the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, that a fellow by the name of Sancherib is going to emerge. He's going to be, come from the, from the uh, empire, the first major empire that we're going to talk about in Jewish history, the uh, Assyrian Empire. And he is going to undertake a major war of conquest, and he's going to capture the northern kingdom of Israel and relocate those people. His method of conquest uh, territorial conquest was you capture a, a nation, you capture another nation, you swap the people. So everyone's in a new neighborhood, and they don't know their way around, they don't know their neighbors, and they lose their bearings, and by the time they could revolt, it's 10 years later, and they, they're just assimilated. That's done. That was their method. So he captured the northern kingdom of Israel, he sent those people out, and he moves a group called the Samaritans in. Mm-hmm. So when he talked about a lot of the, the uh, interactions that the Jews have with the Samaritans, that, those are the people that he imported in place of the ten northern kingdom. Those people are gone. We don't know where they are. Well, a lot of people say, oh, they're there. They're in Nepal. They're in India. They're in Africa. They're this. They're that. We don't know where they're gone. Talmud has a debate whether or not they're going to ever show up. Either way, this guy Sancherib makes his way down to the southern kingdom of Judah, and we have a lot of cuneiforms and other uh, clay... Uh, uh, inscriptions from Sancherib that we have today in the British Museum. There's tons and tons and tons of stuff from Sancherib. He writes all these things. Oh, I captured them, and I captured them, and I sieged Jerusalem. And you open up the Bible, it talks about him sieging Jerusalem, but he doesn't actually capture Jerusalem. And in fact, in the cuneiform that they found out thousands of years later, he talks, he talks all about his, how, oh, I'm going to get them, I'm going to destroy them, but he doesn't actually do it because he falters on the doorstep of Jerusalem. Either way, we find this split that's going to happen amongst the people, amongst the Jews. The northern kingdom they descended, unfortunately, into idolatry. They built temples to idols, and you know they cut off access from the Jewish people in the north to Israel. And they were granted a leash of 180 years. God said, "You guys are not repenting," and they're gone. As opposed to the southern kingdom of Judah, they had the temple, they had righteous leadership, and they uh, are what we are today. Is the Jews are today are from them. Uh, but they only outlast. They only outlast their northern friends. Uh, they only outlast their northern friends for uh, maybe 150 years. You see this on your timeline. They have it. And the Babylonians they destroy the temple in the year 422 before the Common Era. We mentioned last time that the Babylonians, before they destroy the temple, they take 10,000 of the best and brightest of the Jewish people, send them east. And what happens at this point in time is where, from then on, basically essentially up to this current, uh, this past century, 20th century, uh, there's going to be a major Jewish contingency in Babylon. And in fact, from the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, till really the 1950s, um, just a couple of years ago, there's going to be a significant Jewish population in Babylon, in Iraq. 
uh, modern day Iraq. And what's going to happen throughout this, the rest of the time um, of, you know, after the first century, uh, I'm sorry, after the first temple and throughout the second temple era, the vast majority of the people are going to live in Babylon. How are we doing here, guys? We're doing well? Uh, so the temple's destroyed, the Jewish people are depressed, they head to Babylon, in Babylon, uh, they're there, and they reestablish. Remember, they, they got there, there was already a Jewish, uh, a Jewish uh, institutions established by the 10,000 that came earlier. In the interim, in Persia, there's going to be the Purim story. So Persia and the Purim story happens between the first and second temple era. There's only 70 years uh, intermission between the first and second temple. After those 70 years, a fellow by the name of Ezra, very crucial uh, a very crucial um, uh, individual personality in Jewish history, so crucial that Talmud says that he would, was righteous to have been, in place of Moses, the deliverer of the Torah. He was such a great personality. He goes back with 42,000 people, and they rebuild the temple about the year 350, 352, 348, they rebuild the temple. Not only that, he is going to assemble a convention of rabbis that are going to be called the men of the great assembly. And they're going to be dealing with the very unique challenges that were facing the Jewish people. And we mentioned this. The number one important responsibility of our religion is to ensure the transmission of the Torah. How do we do that? Well, you have to do it with the constant teaching of parent to child, of uh, communal learning, and teacher to student, etc. Once that, uh, that, that framework, uh, there's any breakdown in it, then there's a risk. We talked about the safety measures of the Sanhedrin, of the prophets, of uh, of the of the Kohen Gadol. At this juncture in Jewish history, at this juncture, um, we're going to see that many of those institutions are going to fold. The Kohen Gadol is going to be in the first and second temple era. One of them was 410 years, one was 420 years. Basically, both of them are 400 years. First temple, we have a grand total of 18 high priests. That's it. Second temple era, we're going to find a grand total of more than 300 high priests. There's going to be corruption in the leadership of the temple. You're not going to have many of the vessels that exist in the first temple. For example, the Ark of the Covenant, that we all know from the, uh, unfortunately, that's how we know it, from the film, The uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, But the Ark of the Covenant is going to not only exist in the first temple, period. What happened to it is a subject of great, great mystique and intrigue. Uh, but second temple, you're not going to have that. You're not going to have righteous coin. You're not going to have that fancy, fancy footwork that the coin Gadol would do to get the answers. So you have no prophecy. You no longer have the righteous high priest. You are facing made, made, many major existential threats. Ezra assembles this group to deal with that. Now, what is this group? What is this man of the great assembly? What's it called in Hebrew? Who knows what's called in Hebrew? Anche Knesset Hagadola. Men of the great Knesset assembly. In yesterday in Israel, they they elected a new Knesset because the Israeli Parliament is modeled after the ancient assembly of Ezra. Thus, Ezra had 120 members in his assembly. The modern day Knesset has 120 members as well. Interesting. Hmm. Now, uh, I want to read to you guys here what I wrote on my website. It's just um, a shameless plug to get you guys to go to my website. Uh, and to boost my uh, search engine optimization. And, but I gave a whole class on the role of the Medical Great Assembly and what they did to ensure the Torah won't, wouldn't be forgotten. So this is the little blurb that I wrote. Ready? Mm-hmm. 
It is probably impossible for us to truly recognize the enormity of the existential challenges confronting the Jewish people during the beginning of the Second Commonwealth, circa 350 before the Common Era. The Second Commonwealth is a reference, is a Commonwealth we talk about the second time the Jewish people live in Israel, Second Temple. The nation was still reeling from the trauma of the destruction of the First Temple and the subsequent exile 70 years prior and had just narrowly avoided Haman's genocidal ambitions. The people's physical status was unstable at best, but several factors combined to create a spiritual crisis that threatened to completely derail the Jewish nation entirely and to doom the critical mission of Tikkun Olam entrusted to the Jewish people by the mighty uh, many years earlier. During this time period, spanning more than 400 years, many of the basic institutions of normative Judaism will either disappear entirely or remain but as mere shells of the former glory. The temple was indeed rebuilt in Jerusalem. But it was besieged by corruption, devoid of the ever-present miracles that graced the first temple, and even lacking some of the sacred vessels, such as the Ark of the Covenant. A Jewish reality was emerging wherein the majority of Jews were no longer living in Israel, the masses choosing to remain in Babylon. The second temple period was to see only illegitimate teams, the Davidic monarchy only controlling the spiritual, not the political leadership mantle of the people. This era also coincided with the end of prophecy. Judaism, thenceforth, was relegated to being a non-profit organization. This loss of a, divine, a direct divine channel opened the door for massive mutiny, internal infighting, and schismatic sectarianism, and placed the accurate transmission of the Oral Torah in jeopardy. An assembly of 120 sages under the leadership of Ezra was convened to ensure the survival of Judaism, and the remarkable foresight and impact of these personalities and their decisions paved the way for the vibrant and flourishing Judaism that we still have today. Where's the, where's the Pulitzer? Where is the Pulitzer? Anyhow, this is this. <laughs> yeah, you like that, huh? So uh, they were uh, faced with just a barrage of challenges all at once. You know, you have suddenly the Jewish people were all living together in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Half of them decide, more than half of them, the vast majority of them decide to stay in Babylon. Mm-hmm. You know, what's what's up with that? You know, which is actually interesting because it almost identically mirrors what happened in the year 1948. 1948, how many people moved to, uh, this 12 million Jews, right? We know there were 18 million Jews before the Holocaust, 12 afterwards. How many people lived in Israel? And we talked about this last time, in the beginning of the state. Six million? No, 600,000. Six million there today. 600,000. 5% of the people are living in Israel. That's it. 5% of the people. You're like, wait a minute. Like, if you had to zoom out historical context, like, you guys finally got back to Israel. What are all the Jews doing living in Houston, Texas, in New York City, and, I don't know, in, in Paris, wherever they're living? Well, why don't they all move to Israel? You know, it's, a, it's a good question that in 100 years from now or 200 years from now, everyone's going to be asking the same question. Like, if you zoom out to big, you're like, what is up with you? That's the same question we have to ask the people in Babylon. They're like, dude, you just kicked out. You were crying on the rivers of Babylon. Ah, how are we going to see, right? You're all upset. We're going to Babylon. What's the guess going to be? You go to Babylon. You get complacent. You like it. Hey, I kind of like this this way of life. Oh, that's pretty convenient. You got all the creature comforts. I got everything here. Who needs to go back to Israel? And you know what? Ezra goes back to Israel. We got 42,000 people. That's it. The vast majority of Jewish people, right, decide that we're staying in Babylon. Someone pointed out that there's about 5%, 5% of people joined Ezra in his in his uh, in his uh, trek back to Israel, and five percent of the people uh, of the Jews uh, were there at the founding of the state of Israel, modern day state of Israel, state of Israel. Very interestingly, so that's one challenge. Uh, another challenge is you now have no more prophets. You have a few more prophets. You have the, Ezra was one of the last of the prophets. You have Chaggai, Zechariah, Malachi. 
uh, are going to be the end of the prophecy. Prophecy is ending. Everyone, it was clear to everyone. So what happens now? You have you have uh, a Judaism that's that's going to be open now to attack. You know, mm-hmm. anyone who wants to attack the Jewish people could do it. Before and you want to try, you want to attack Jewish tradition, you want to attack Jewish learning, you want to attack Jewish law. You can't do it because there's a prophet. The prophet tells you how, how much change you have in your pocket. You know, like mm-hmm. those tricks that, that, that the magicians do. You no, know, everyone, no one questions legitimacy of the prophecy. The prophet says the way it is. That's the way it is. No more prophets. What's going to be? Everyone can say what they want. Mm-hmm. Everyone can argue and never, ever, you know, everyone can say, oh, you know what? I don't believe in this. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in oral Torah. How are you going to prove it to them? Major, major problem. So what he did, he took the Sanhedrin. He realized the Sanhedrin is going to be the, the one institution that's going to outlast us. So he had the foresight to take the Sanhedrin and expand it temporarily. Uh, from 71 uh, members to 120 members. Now, expanded for about 100 years, and they took on the role of creating a Judaism that's going to outlast mm-hmm. the temple, outlast prophecy, outlast uh, the Kohen Gadol, outlast the, uh, the, the tremendous personalities that kept it intact uh, till then. Some of the major accomplishments that we have today are the Sidur, right? the codifying the Siddur. There's a, a mitzvah in the Torah to pray. There's a mitzvah, one of the mitzvahs is to pray. How do you pray? What do you say? What do you do? Right? Well, that was left to everyone to their own discretion. They decided to mandate a formalized prayer mm-hmm. in a communal setting, right? To ensure that the Jewish people at least a couple of times a day get together as one. Right? We are going to uh, emphasize the communal aspect to ensure the unity and continuity of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one. Number two, they canonized the Jewish Bible. They decided, they created this, uh, the canon, uh, the corpus of, of Jewish learning. You know, there was many prophets, and many of them had written many wonderful books. But they decide which information was important and relevant for the Jewish people for eternity, and which one wasn't. So they kept 24 books of the, of, of the Bible that we have today. That's the 24 books of the Torah. Uh, many books were not included. Like many Jewish books were not included in, in, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Jewish Bible. Uh, either way, that is what's, that, that, that's what's going to happen at that time. If you want to hear more about that, I advise you to go to my website, find that uh, class, Google Ezra, and you'll find it. Not Google, uh, search Ezra, and you'll hear more about that. It's at a great, great length. Other challenges are going to face the people. Till then, we have, uh, we see the common, a common theme again and again. You, you see the Jewish nation and then the emerging global power. So you have the Assyrians and Sancherib, and they made tremendous, tremendous uh, impact, negative impact among, among people. You have Persians, they tried to destroy the Jewish people. Uh, uh, the Babylonians, of course, they destroyed the temple. Uh, those are going to be the uh, eastern empires that are going to dominate uh, at that time. During the second temple period, we're going to meet uh, the western empires. We're going to meet the Greeks, controlled everything. Uh, this guy Alexander, you know, old power to him. My goodness, what he what he conquered! A tremendous conquest. Basically, all of Europe and all the way uh, Asia, all the way to uh, all the way to India. Incredible. Uh, and the and and they're going to have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a, a lot of interactions with the Jewish people, and that's going to have its effects. Uh, the uh, the you know the barbarian who was. Uh, the uh, oppressive empire till then is now uh, replaced by this really intelligent philosophical Greek guy. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they they had a common. The Jewish people were always immersed in scholarship and study, always one hundred percent literate, and, and had ideas, had visions, had plans, had, mm-hmm. had you know, and that kind of met its natural partner with the Greeks. Mm-hmm. You know, the Greeks introduced ideas that are radical at the time, but are, you know, are aligned in some way with, you know, we find someone we could talk to finally. It's nice to have a neighbor that shares some of your values or some of your interests or something like that, you know? I don't know what, you got, what your interest is, but like, you know, you meet someone who's like, oh, you're also super into knitting, mm. right? It's like you have a common, I don't know, someone into knitting. <laughs> I just, I pitch something that it's likely that's, that none of you. Oh, you're into fantasy football also? Nothing. Oh, you also do craft beer in your in your garage, right? So the Jewish people felt that with, the, with you know the Greeks. The Greeks show up, and suddenly the Greeks say, "Hey, we have some other ideas. We have this idea called the gymnasium, which is from the Greek word, word uh, gymnos, which means naked. You know, let's get all get naked. Mm-hmm. Nothing to be embarrassed about. Let's go throw discuses across these. Like let's let's let let's embrace the beauty of of, of the human body. Nothing to be embarrassed about." And the Jews are like, whoa, 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 hold on, wait a second. I don't know about that, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, they had their own collection of idols, they, but they had core of an intellectual idols. And that was a major problem. There was an entire sect of the Jewish people that were so enraptured by the, by the, by the, by the Greeks that they became like these, they were called Hellenized, Hellenized Jews. Right. They're like the high society, the really, you know, the professors, like, yeah, you know, it's like kind of the, 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 uh, the you know, the white, uh, the white, uh, uh, the white uh, liberals in college campuses mm-hmm. that are professors, you know, the guys that have these fucking glasses, the, you know, that elitists, yeah. you know, uh, uh, but, um, so, th- so that's, that's basically what happened. So you have a major portion of the Jewish people that went uh, astray in that, in that fashion. You have a group emerging called the Sadducees, Tzedokim. They were a group of Jews that rejected one of the most pivotal elements of the Torah, uh, or of Jewish life, and that is the Oral Torah. They said the rabbis came and they fabricated the Oral Torah. They made it up. It's, it's a bunch of nonsense. That's what, they, that's what they said, right? So, they decided we're not having, we're not fulfilling any mitzvah that's not expressly included in the Torah. So they wore that tefillin that's between their eyes. In fact, you see it when we're in tefillin today, it's all on top of their head. But it's a line between their eyes. They wore tefillin actually between their eyes, like, like right over here. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's what it says, it's wear tefillin between your eyes. How they know what tefillin looks like is another example where uh, against their will are twisting their arm, kicking and streaming. They do believe in oral Torah. But, for example, we know that there's a, a, a bit of tradition from time immemorial for the Jewish communities to have, uh, to have a hot meal on Shabbos morning. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that? It's called a, it's, nowadays it's called a cholent. Have you ever heard of the cholent? Mm-hmm. Heard of that? You should taste my cholent. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> That's what I'm doing there. <laughs> so... So, uh, where does this come from? Where does the idea of, and it's a tradition across all spans of, it came from the Tzedokim. The Sadducees, they say, you know what the Torah says, don't kindle a fire on Shabbos. So they said, you can't have any heat source, you can't have any light source, nothing. You gotta be in total darkness, and all your foods gotta be cold. Well, we know, the oral Torah tells us, well, you can't kindle a fire, but you can have a fire if it was, you know, pre-existing, like pre-existing conditions. 
preaches this pre it was if the fire was preaching the condition you gotta you allow it. Right? So that's why in order to show that we are not the Tzidokim, Jewish communities have adopted this practice of always having hot food on Shabbos morning to show that we are allowed to have a hot food, a lot of a fire. You have a fire running on Shabbat, you have electricity on Shabbat, uh, provided you don't turn on the electricity or ignite the fire. What did he do? Someone else outside could come over and turn the light on because he couldn't. <laughs> you got to hire the Gentile, huh? You got to say, uh, hey, uh, it's really dark. Like, oh, oh, I feel terrible for you. Yeah, and I can't turn it on. Oh, oh, oh. You like, did you get it? Get the hint, get the hint. Anyhow. So, so that's another example, a major, major conflict that's going to uh, provide uh, lots and lots of headaches for the Jewish people at that time. Uh, they're going to uh, the Hanukkah story. So what happens? Hanukkah story is an example of another kind of challenge that's going to happen to the Jewish people at that time. They're going to have a foreign leadership this way, we, as we know, just a quick, quick overview of what happened. So the Greek Empire uh, basically reaches its pinnacle when uh, Alexander captures everything. Alexander never lost a battle, but he died at the age of 32 after 10 years of relentless conquest. He dies on the way back from India to, uh, uh, to, to Macedonia, to, to Greek, Greece. Uh, he died of some exotic disease, which from his uh, salacious behavior mm-hmm. seems not out of uh, the ordinary for that to have happened. Either way, uh, he leaves such an enormous empire, and there's not a single person that can fill, fill his boots. Eventually, the massive Greek empire gets fragmented into three different empires, the Ptolemites of Egypt, the Seleucids, and the Macedonians. Uh, and Seleucids always was the Assyrians, of course. Uh, now, uh, So you have basically three different empires, the Greek proper, or the Macedonians, uh, the Assyrians, or the Seleucids, the Ptolemites, or the Egyptians. Israel is for about a hundred years going to be between the two. You have two warring uh, Greek empires: the Seleucid Greeks and the Assyrian, the Seleucid uh, slash Assyrian versus the Ptolemite. The Jewish people are going to ping pong back and forth as to who controls Israel. So remember, you have this precarious situation: you have a temple, and you got the high priest, then you have, but then you have some Jews that are. Uh, that are Hellenized, and some Jews that are Sadducees, and some Jews that are uh, Baitusim, and then you have the Ptolemites, and they, they, they come up, and they say, hey, we want this, we want that. And then a half hour later, the Seleucids come, and they can chapter Israel. So it's a very, uh, uh, it's a very uh, chaotic time. Uh, eventually, uh, the Seleucids, in the year 198, the Battle of Banyas, uh, the Seleucids, they capture Israel. Originally, it was all nice, fine, and dandy. And then come along uh, a fellow by the name of Antiochus, and he makes these new rules. He says, oh, you can't keep Torah, you can't suit to circumcision. And that creates a uh, revolt known as the Hasmonean or Maccabean Revolt. And eventually, they recapture Israel. They establish sovereignty. They reinstitute the temple, and they kick off 100 years of Hasmonean dynasty. Uh, now... I'm like I feel like we're going, we're going like each one like each sentence could be its own class. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. we're like yeah. we're eating up these tracts of yeah. of Jewish history, like just gobbling it up and trying to do as much as we can. Whatever you're saying, I'm, I'm always putting something in there that you don't say. You know, like yeah, uh, you're filling in the blanks. Yeah. So the Hasmonean dynasty. So they uh, they establish sovereignty, and they uh, make some crucial mistakes at their at, at their onset. So it starts off as being this 
great nation, a great family, um, Matthias and his five kids, and they're all righteous and whatnot. But they're once their grandkids get involved, it's kind of like when you know you have the guy who works really hard to build a company, and then his son follows, and then they give the keys to the grandkid, and all he wants to do is just have fun and just spend all the money. Huh? Well, it's more than that. It's more than that. It, 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 it was it was a uh, perversion. So um, eventually, you find kings of Israel that are Sadducees. It's a great story. Alexander Yanai. First of all, you have Jews by the name of Alexander Yanai, the high priest by the name of Jason. Like, what is going on in this place? You know. Uh, so you have this king by the name of Alexander Yanai, who was a king and a high priest. Which, by the way, those things should never be drawn together. King, king should always be from the tribe of Judah. He's a king and a high priest, and he makes mockery of the oral Torah. So he takes the water instead of pouring it on the altar, he pours it on his own on his own feet. And this is on the holiday of Sukkot. And there's thousands of Jews, and the masses of the people are loyal to Torah and loyal to mm-hmm. tradition. The hierarchy and the aristocracy and the monarchy, they're all Sadducees. So what do the Jews do? All the Jews are there with their esrogs and lulams, right? The Jews start pelting him with their esrogs. Great story. So he's there, and he's on the high end. There's thousands of Jews everywhere, and he starts making a mockery. They start chalking esrogs at him. And he almost dies at that time, but he, he orders them. They massacre a thousand Jews. Disaster. Basically, that's what happens uh, until the arrival of Pompey and the Romans in the year 62 before the Common Era. Romans come, and there's all whole sets of issues that happen with the Jewish people at that time. Gosh, we could talk about this for hours. Uh, and the, the procurators, the pro- proconsuls, and, and Herod, and rebuilding the temple, reestablishing the temple, rededicating the, temp- t- t- the temple. Either way, let's fast forward to all of this to the year 30. The year 30 of the Common Era. What happens to the year 30 of the Common Era? Something very important. So what happens to Sanhedrin throughout this time? Sanhedrin is the one bastion of Jewish stability. It's the one institution that has not been corrupted. It's one institution that is continually ongoing since Moses. It is the it is the uh, it is the vanguard of the people. That's what it is, and they are still adjudicating the law the way Moses had intended for it to be done. They are still mediating with bachlokas with disagreements. Every time there's a disagreement, they go to the Sanhedrin. It was clarified. All these factors contributed to a rise in disagreements, but they were still held in check. In the year 30, they decide to leave Jerusalem, leave Jerusalem, and uh, either temporarily disband or move to a different place, move to Yavna. Why did they do that? So there's a law, uh, capital crime, capital punishment in Jewish, in Jewish, in, in Jewish law uh, can only be practiced when the Sanhedrin is in Session in Jerusalem. Even before, even before the temple was established in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin was always at with the tabernacle. We're talking about the tabernacle mm-hmm. being the center point of the Jewish focus, Sanhedrin was always there. The tabernacle travels, Sanhedrin travels. They're always going with them. Uh, there's a stipulation that, that, that capital punishment can only be uh, meted out so long as the Sanhedrin is in session uh, at the, at, at, in the temple. There was an influx of activity for the Sanhedrin. The Jewish people and the Roman Roman influences and the, just the just the uh, collection of of different uh, factions and factors and influences that existed at that time created a world where 
unfortunately, they were being busy, too busy. There was murder, too much murder happening, and they decided, they made a decision, we are leaving Jerusalem, thus handcuffing all Jewish courts that they cannot uh, practice capital punishment. Why is this? This is an important point. Jewish law, look at Jewish law, very strict, very stringent, very restrictive. And the punishments that are associated with these laws are also very strict, very strict, very restrictive. It seems like the Torah is written, or the laws are are, are organized for a very specific nation, mm-hmm. for a nation that a, a, any minor transgression in any law of Shabbat warrants the death penalty. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a nation where the spiritual quality of the adherence is so high that any minor deviation from tradition, mm-hmm. from the law, was a big deal. Like if, if you saw someone uh, uh, plowing his field on Shabbat, like mm-hmm. it would be equivalent to you literally seeing someone you know, murder someone else. Like it was just so unheard of. It was so out of, the, out, of, out of the question. The Torah was written, or the laws of the Torah uh, and the uh, adjudication of these laws were not intended for it to happen every day. In fact, mm-hmm. the Talmud says, that a court that kills that executes someone more than once every seven years is 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 a murderous court. Why? Because you're clearly being too harsh. Because the Jewish people, it doesn't make sense that more than once every seven years there should be someone deserving of the death penalty. That's the righteous nation for which the Torah law was written. The nation hath devolved, and uh, there was a devolvement in the quality. Uh, and the dedication, the commitment of the Jewish people had to the Torah, that the Sanhedrin says, you know what? For this nation, we don't belong here. So they left. And what's actually interesting, we talk about uh, the whole debate is the Jews killed Jesus or not, who killed Jesus, whatever. If the Sanhedrin was not in session during that time, there's no way the Jewish people, no, no Jewish court would have killed them. That's, it's a fundamental, rudimentary principle that everyone knows. That if there's no court in session, in Jerusalem, uh, there cannot be no capital punishment anywhere. Mm-hmm. Whether If they killed him, then they must have gone back to Jerusalem. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to take a stance on that issue. Of course. Either way, they foresaw the end coming. To them, they said, yes, the temple is still in existence. Yes, we still have sacrifices. Yes, we still have the high priest. Yes, we still have holidays and the pilgrimages and everything. Mm-hmm. But we could see that this is not going to last that much longer. Thus, they picked up and they moved out. Fast forward to the year 66. The year 66 uh, of the Common Era was the Great Revolt. Oh, no, they're out for longer. They, actually, they never came back. Are these approximately? 66? No, the dates are. Uh, some of them are. No, they're, these are the traditional Jewish dates. Okay. Uh, but uh, I, I, any mistakes in this is mine because I wrote this. But let's say I wrote the year 70 for the destruction of the Second Temple. It's actually not the Jewish date. The Jewish date is the year 68. I took some minor liberties uh, to <laughs> some uh, poetic license. I'm not, I'm not judging because I couldn't have put this together myself. I'm just, I'm just. Right. So, um, so um, the year 66 there was what's called the Great Revolt. During the dominion of the Roman Empire, we call the Roman, we mean the Eastern 
the Western Roman Empire, not the Eastern Roman, which is the this, the uh, uh, the Byzantine Empire. That's that's later. We'll meet them later. Uh, during that time, no nation, no uh, no group revolted more than the Jewish people, Jews. They revolted in the year 66, they revolted in the year 73, they revolted in the year 115, they revolted in the year 132, remarkably. And they had the most success as well. The Jewish people at that time were, um, when they fought, we think of the Jews today as, you know, Jewish accountants, you know. <laughs> what is he going to do? Is he's going to sling his uh, backpack at you, his attache case at you? The Jews at the time were warriors, and they fought like the Japanese in World War II. Crazy, just insane. Everyone was terrified of, of, of encountering the Jewish people in open warfare. Yeah. So they did. Uh, so in fact, when when they uh, when they squelched the rebellion, they did it uh, piecemeal, not not encountering the Jewish people in open warfare. This is already uh, documented by contemporary historians. Like Josephus writes that uh, they would uh, they 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 were scared of that. You know, Jewish people were crazy, fight like lunatics. So the Jewish people near succeeded in uh, in banishing the Romans from Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that had a ripple effect, and eventually um, they began a systematic destruction of Jewish communities. So the Roman the Roman uh, military army would uh, would come from the hill of the north, and slowly they made their way down to the south, and they destroyed town of town. They would lay siege, and they would destroy the city, and then put, put salt everywhere so nothing could grow, and slaughter everyone. It was a real disaster. Eventually, in the year 70, they came to Jerusalem, or in the year 68, I think, they came to Jerusalem, they sieged the city, and got really bad, and there was infighting with the people, different groups, the Bryonim, and the Sicarium, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and all the Assis, all these different groups, were fighting in Jerusalem, there was civil war, don't ask, they they were were, um, uh, stores of grain and wood that could have sustained the people for... 21 years, but then the uh, the you know the the, the macho guys and, and one of the people they said, oh you know what I want to fight let's fight the Romans oh how are we going to fight you know oh you know what let's just, let's burn down all these storages they burnt down all the storages can you imagine they burnt down the storage so that, thus the Jews will be starving and they'll have to go out and forage for food and fight the Romans so there's literally people dying of hunger in the streets and people eating ba- dead babies just a disaster of all disasters and all these you know in fact these disasters are, are entailed in the Torah like. This was just a devolvement of the Jewish people. Either way, we have this uh, a seminal meeting that happens between Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and Vespasian. So Vespasian, he was the general uh, who, um, who was overseeing the siege. Uh, in the year 69, he uh, became the emperor, and his son, Titus, eventually was the general who destroyed Jerusalem. Titus himself is also later on going to become an emperor. Uh, so, so Rabbi Yochum and Zachary comes to him and tells him, listen, there's a whole story how he got to him. Guys, we could be here for hours. I really feel like I'm doing, it, I'm doing a disservice to these great stories. But I want to do it, uh, you know, I want to tell the point. I'll, I'll tell you the story, guys. Who cares? Huh? <laughs> what do you say? I said, do we need to have three nights instead of two? No, well, we need we need more than that. But I, I try to give like a bait as much as we can. We'll hopefully get to the mission up to the mission today. So the uh, so there's a siege, Roman siege around Jerusalem, and no one's allowed to go in or go out. And even the dead, if they had to be buried outside, the people at the gate would shove swords through the casket to ensure the guy's actually dead. 
So Rabbi Yochanan Zachai, who was the rabbi of Jerusalem at that time, he sent out a rumor that he's sick. Sick. Everyone pray, everyone pray for Rabbi Yochanan Zachai. They said the rumor that he's died. So they put him in a, in a box and they bring him out to smuggle him out. And they, get, they go to the gate, they say, I don't let you go. Maybe he's alive. I want to shove a knife through him. He said, no, come on. He turns to Rabbi Yochanan Zachai. He said, okay, fine. So he goes out and he goes into the Roman encampments and he goes to meet Vespasian. And Vespasian, he tells Vespasian, oh, welcome the emperor. He's like, what? I'm not an emperor. I'm just a general. That's mutiny. He says, no, you're going to be an emperor. Fine. In the course of conversation, some guy comes and says, oh, by the way, the, the emperor in Rome died and they, the, the, the senators have chosen you. So he's all, he freaks out with the story. He's like, oh, wow, this rabbi, I'm going to grant you three requests. The original genie, right? So what does he do? What does he ask for? He does not ask for Jerusalem to be spared. And this is always used as an example of great Jewish foresight, great, great leadership to have the foresight to know what, what's going to ensure the Jewish people's continuity. He tells him, I want you to give me three things. First of all, there's this great righteous rabbi by the new Rabbi Tzadok who has been fasting for years because he saw the impending doom of destruction. I'm going to send doctors to heal him. Okay, one, fantastic. He's like, I'm getting away with a steal here. Three requests. Yes, get some old rabbi. Fine. The, Number two, I want you to spare the family of Rabbi Gamliel. You're going to destroy now. You're going to destroy the Jewish people. You're going to kill everyone slaughter, which they, they did. They slaughtered so much. There were rivers of blood just for years. Literally. Um, disaster. But he spared the family of Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel was a family of the Nassim. These are the descendants, these are the descendants or the, the uh, uh, yeah, the descendants. I, thought he was, I don't know what I said. I said descendants, but I said disciples. Sorry, I apologize. Uh, so the, they're the descendants of Hillel. They're the family of David. And they're going to be the Nisim, the presidents of the Jewish community, for hundreds of years afterwards. And they're going to be like an element of central leadership and kind of a, a, a faint shadow, an echo of the great leaders of yesteryear are going to be the leaders uh, in this new Judaism that's going to emerge. And lastly, he says, Ten Give me Yavne and its sages. Yavne was the place where the Sanhedrin was living. And he says, Spare Yavne and its sages. So, Vespasian agrees, and so it was those three requests were granted. Jerusalem is destroyed in utter, in utter terrible fashion. You can even talk about how, 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 how brutal it is. Uh, and... After that, like, there begins a process of rebuilding. So during those years, the Yavne community and the Sanhedrin is going to be the unquestioned leader of the people. So at, before, we talked about the Hellenists and the Sadducees and the Judeo-Christians and all these groups have disappeared now. They're all gone. They're all gone at that time. All you have is the rabbis. And over the next 50 years, there's going to be a concerted effort to, number one, make sure that the Judaism is going to exist now for another thousands of, thousands of years, despite the fact that we don't no longer even have uh, even, fake, even fake kings. We have no, no Israel. We're not living in Jerusalem. We have no high priest, no temple, none of that. Um, so there's lots of details what they did. But they, uh, they also uh, streamlined halacha, mm-hmm. Jewish law. And... Over the next 50 years, they're going to rehabilitate, rehabilitate the people. By the time the year 115 arrives, the Jewish people are, are back to where they were. It's kind of almost eerily similar to what happened in the Holocaust. Really, the Holocaust is being a total decimation of the Jewish people. Like, uh, you know, what happened? What was left of the Holocaust? Remnants. Nothing. The Jews in America were uh, uh, vastly, I guess, uh, 
they were certainly less Jewish than the Jews of Europe. When Jews arrived to America, we talked about this last time, they assimilated very fast. Uh, America was a melting pot. You know, someone wanted, to, someone wanted to not work on Shabbos. You know what he had to do? Get fired from his job. You know, it was a very hard place for Jews, Jews to maintain the Judaism in, in, uh, in America pre-World War II. And European Jewry was a pile of rubble. That's it. You know, so if you were to make your judgment call in the year 1945 or 1946, what's going to be now with the Jewish people? What are they going to look like in 50, 60 years? You would say, it's, it's going to disappear. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing left. There's no, where are the Jews? Israel's not around yet. Nothing. They were beaten to a bloody pulp. They're gone. That's it. Where are the Jews? Dispersed and scattered everywhere. That's it. It's a faint memory. That's what you, you would have said. And look where we were at today. Look how quickly we rebuilt. Six million Jews live in America. Six million Jews are living in Israel. Vibrant, strong communities everywhere you go. Jews are on top of the world wherever they, everything they touch. Right? That's basically what happened. The year 115 arrives, a fellow by the name of Hadrian. Ooh, it's like my, my throat hurts from talking so quickly. So uh, Hadrian arrives and he uh, is flummoxed by the incredible meteoric growth of the people. He begins, uh, he begins what, is, what is going to be systemic, basically, over the next thousands of years. Uh, and he begins a, a path to once and for all disassemble the Jewish people. So he, uh, he uh, puts in place many restrictive laws, like he says, if someone studies Torah, he basically revives Antiochus's laws. Mm-hmm. Antiochus of the second century before the Common Era said, hey, can't study Torah, we'll kill you. you. Give your son a circumcision, we'll kill you. You observe the Shabbos, we'll kill you. Eat kosher only, we'll kill you. But he, he extended it further. He says, if you, uh, if you perpetuate ordination, rabbinic ordination, you, you declare someone as a rabbi, we kill you. Imagine? Not only that, we kill you, we kill the rabbi, we kill the, the, the apprentice, we, cl- we kill the entire city in which this micha was conferred. And that kicks off what's known as the Bar Kokhba revolt. And the most successful of all revolts uh, of, of 200 years of Pax Romana. And that is in the year 132 that uh, they got fed up with all this marginalization of the Jewish way of life and they revolt. And they succeed. And they manage to, to take all the Romans out of Israel. And they establish a sovereignty. And they mint coins. In fact, the coins that there are, the coinage in Israel today are replicas of the coins that, that they found uh, by the thousands excuse me, uh, after, uh, uh, from the times of Bar Kokhba, who led that revolt. Eventually, in the year 135, the revolt was squelched, squelched and quelled, and uh, a shmad, once again, Hadrian re-intensified his effort to destroy Judaism. So this is, again and again, we see this again, systemic. Jewish people are threatened. Jewish continuity is threatened. Jewish teaching is threatened. Uh, how is the oral Torah going to survive? How is it going to thrive when you have a splintering of Jewish leadership, a weakening of Jewish central authority, a dispersal of Jews uh, throughout throughout the world? It's a very, very challenging time. So what we're going to find at this time, uh, a great individual, a great personality, uh, or actually a, a convention of many great personalities are going to make a decision that's going to save the Jewish people. Rabbi Judah the Prince, a significant rabbi, who lived 
in the end of the second century of the Common Era, he is going to be placed in a very unique situation. So we look at our timesheets here, or our uh, timelines, we find in the year 161, a, uh, uh, a emperor who, by the name of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, is going to become emperor of Rome. And he is going to be a great friend of the Jews, and he's going to become a personal confidant of Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was the Nasi, who was the president and the head of the Sanhedrin. And, in fact, there are Jewish traditions that he, he, he converted to Judaism. Pretty remarkable. We have in the Talmud recount, re- recorded uh, dialogues and polemics that he engaged with with Rabbi Judah the Prince. Either way, he is going to provide a respite of about 20, 30, 40 years of relative calm and stability that is going to kick off one of the biggest efforts uh, in all of human history, uh, biggest campaigns in all of human history is we undertaking under the leadership of Rabbi Judah the Prince uh, to write down the Oral Torah. The Oral Torah is called Oral, but if you walk into any Jewish bookstore, you can actually get a copy of it. Mm-hmm. And you say, wait a minute, if it's Oral Torah, why, why, how can we have copies of it? Mm-hmm. The answer is that it was oral, it was intended to maintain the oral, but by, by necessity, it had to be written down. They realized that it's becoming harder and harder with these conditions to mm-hmm. perpetuate the Torah. Mm-hmm. Thus, they feared a time may come where Torah may be forgotten. They made a decision to write it all down, all of the laws, the entire teacher's edition of the written Torah, write it down. This is from the introduction of Maimonides, where he talks about uh, the role that Rabbi uh, Judah the Prince did in writing down the Mishnah. Says Rabbi Judah, Rabbi Judah the Prince here. This is a direct quote from his introduction. Rabbi Judah the Prince wrote the Mishnah from the time of Moses, our holy teacher. No one had written a work which the Oral Torah was publicly taught. Rather, in each generation, the head of the court or the prophet at the time wrote down for his private use notes on the traditions he had heard from his teachers, but he taught in public from memory. So there's a, a stipulation that the oral Torah may only be transmitted orally. It cannot be codified, canonized, or uh, organized in a written fashion at all. Why that was so, there's, I have at least five reasons why. Separate class. Let's negotiate, get another class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had his reason, uh, it was in the Torah already, he cannot write down the oral Torah. However, people wrote down individually, but not for, per, per, uh, not for public consumption. Uh, Rabbi Judah the Prince gathered all the traditions, all the enactments, all the explanations, all the interpretations that have been heard from Moses or have been deduced by the courts of the generations and all matters of the Torah, and he wrote down the book of the Mishnah. By the book of the Mishnah, how big is the book? How many, how many pages? Who knows? Um. So look in the back here, the back page here, wrote. Uh, the Mishnah, you have a little uh, pie chart. It's like one of those uh, food pyramids. How much a grain you're supposed to eat and how much, right? So the top you have the Torah, uh, the, the Bible, I guess the Torah, plus the prophets and the writings comprise the Bible. Those, that's called the written Torah. And then you have, uh, the next one is the oral Torah, which is the, uh, number one, you see the Mishnah. Right? So the Mishnah is, is divided into six orders, six different sections. And then 63 different tractates, or books. So we talk about the Mishnah being a book, it's actually 63 different books. 
in which they wrote in quite terse fashion all the laws of the Torah. And it was a it was a collaboration of a thousand different rabbis under the leadership of Rabbi Judah the Prince. Thus, uh, a uh, a concession, uh, because ideally it's better for Torah to nep- the Torah to ne- not be written. It was a concession, but it was undertaken in order to ensure the uh, perpetuation of the Torah. Had he not done that, who knows if we would still be around today? The ensuing two thousand years were not easy ones for the Jewish people. But we always had the Torah, and we always had the Mishnah to reference back to. Uh, I'll stop here. It's nine o'clock. My throat's hurting, uh, but I uh, I want to just uh, kind of give an overview of the message I want to convey, and that is how Jewish history is not one of just uh, cookies and cream, you know, pie and ice cream. It's a time that we have. It's a history, and you know, you, you just just look at, you know, even the last thousand years, and how we're kicked out of every every country in Europe, and us. We have inquisitions and blood libels and Holocausts and disaster, uh, but we're still around. Mm-hmm. You know, this could not have existed the vibe Jews we have today if not for the many many great leaders, starting from Moses, right, and starting from the Torah, the way the Torah itself ensures that the Jewish people will continue. We're an eternal nation. God promises you will be around forever, despite the fact that you'll always be small in number. Mm-hmm. How are we going to do that? How are we going to survive? We're going to survive. It's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be exciting. It's not always going to be something that we want to be a part of. It's like, hey, who wants to be part of the Holocaust? Not me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to be around. And, and, and we have a Torah to unite us. And we talk about just the different challenges that were faced internal from within and from without that the Jewish that the Jewish people and the Torah faced, and the major important landmark decisions that the great leaders made. That in hindsight we see the remarkable foresight that they had, uh, that they had, and you know we we live today we 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 enjoy the benefits of of their decisions. So that, that's the that's the idea I want to convey. And that's and that's a theme we see again again throughout Jewish history. You know. It, it, it's hard to do all Jewish history in uh, in two classes. I did do it once, by the way. If you want to listen to it once, I spoke even faster than I'm speaking now. And I did it. I don't think I got all the way to the end, but I got close. Uh, so it's hard to really give over all the details. You know, Even now, we're emitting just mountains and mountains of information. Mm-hmm. But that's the idea. And that's a theme we see again and again. We're always going to face challenges. We're always going to be maneuvered and negotiated and, and, and massaged uh, you know, along along our uh, our journey. You know, we, we we the one thing that is anathema to Jewish history is 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 being uh, is being uh, what's the word uh, uh, where someone is uh, complacent. Sorry, I was thinking of words on the T. Complacent, complacent. We don't get complacent, right? If we're not spurring ourselves, well, the Gentiles will spur us, right? If we're not progressing, well, then we're regressing. When we regress, we're in danger. When we're in danger. We get a little punch in the face, you know? So we're all, it, it's a constant dynamic history. Uh, and a history that is remarkable that we're still around today, but it's actually not so remarkable. Because you look at the way it was established, you look at the Sanhedrin, and how this was at the core, you know, with the temple of Jewish central authority, even past the temples being destroyed. And the decision that these people made, and Ezra, 
and uh, and Rabbi Judah the Prince, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, they're great leaders uh, who ensured that the Judaism that we have today. So we talk about history and history at large, and there's a big debate that we have, you know, with let's say Greek philosophy on this issue. We don't believe that uh, that history is just its own, uh, you know, animal unto its own, just careening and just uh, and just themes are going to, are bound to happen. We talk about history as being the uh, the works of man, man and God, basically, man and God determining how the world's going to work. You know, in Jewish theology, we talk about God partnering with man to decide what happens, uh, and therefore, history is really in our hands. You know, we make the choices, and the choices that we've had in yesteryear by the great leaders uh, are are ones that we study today. You know, because that is why we're here, and that. And, and the sacrifices that they made to make sure that Judaism that we have today is as robust and vibrant and, 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 and hopefully continuing the mission that uh, Judaism is based upon. So that's that. Those are the ideas, Jewish history. Uh, I, you know, I'll take a question in a second. I, I, I'm go- throughout the Bar Bar Mitzvah program, I got willing to be teaching more classes. Uh, so you'll have uh, some more of that. Oh, is that right? Looking forward. What is it? <laughs> Ooh, Jewish calendar. Is there only one edition? Oh, don't tell me there's only one. I think it's only one. Oh gosh. Okay, so you'll hear you'll hear the recording. So that's that, guys. Any questions? Question. Yeah, I had a great uh, a great survivor that uh, I call a great leader of the home. Mm-hmm. Is my grandfather. Nice. Because when they were not allowed to do the Shabbat. To know, let the people know that they were Jewish. Now, mind you, they they were German, blind, some of them my people. And what my grandfather would do is, all of the family, the seven of them, they would the, the siblings, they would get together on the Friday, you know, in the evening, and they would have the meal, but they wouldn't call it just about meal. They would just have a meal outside. People were just thinking that the family was getting together. And that's how. That's why I say he was great, because they survived doing that uh, without anybody outside well, knowing about it. Just a remarkable now, story. Now, that's right here. Really? There was uh, religious persecution in Texas? You sure? You don't? Uh, there still is right now. What, what's wrong? Where you been? <laughs> where, where have you been? <laughs> I, know, I wear my keeper wherever I go. <laughs> We do too, but you haven't got, you received it yet. Come on, listen. I'm I'm uh, I'm six foot tall, you know. With uh, I'll take no nonsense from no one. Yeah. Oh, I don't either. But I'm just saying. Back then, the rest of survived. Man, all of this. Uh, this is uh, oh, this is not for them to keep. They're not here. All of his children became doctors. And, uh, Pretty cool. That must be a great story. Is it published anywhere? No, everybody's saying, why don't you write it? That sounds like a great story.